A quick note. This episode of True Crime Chronicles includes discussion of sexual abuse and an extended conversation with a survivor of child sexual abuse and may not be suitable for all audiences. If that's something you'd like to skip, we'll be back as always with another episode next week. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. He was pulling me out of my bed, and truly in that moment, I didn't feel like I had an option. I felt like the only thing I could do was go with this man, do as he said, and so I did. She talked about, you know, it's not your fault. It's the predators that rape and hurt and abuse, and that they're the ones that are at fault. Nobody else can diminish your worth. No, whatever they do, they cannot diminish your worth as a human being. I think every single one of us could agree that we all have a story in our lives, whether it's just been through this past year of COVID or whether it's something more than that. This is the voice of Elizabeth Smart. And actually, it's probably more fair to say we all have stories, plural, rather than just one. And a lot of times, unfortunately, these stories, they don't, they're not, they're not easy. They're they're difficult. They're hard. It's been 19 years since Elizabeth was kidnapped, taken from her home in Salt Lake City, Utah, and forced to endure nine months of captivity and abuse. But in those 19 years, she's dedicated her life to working towards a world where what happened to her, what she survived, can't happen to anyone else. I need to speak out because I have that safety and security in my life where I'm not scared of something happening at night or when I come home or when I turn my back. I was absolutely blessed to get the opportunity to talk to Elizabeth. Earlier this year, when Elizabeth was in Memphis, Tennessee, she sat down for a one-on-one interview with Katina Rankin, an anchor with local news station WATN. Every year, Methodist Healthcare has this mental health breakfast. And for the seven years that I've been here, I've emceed every last one with the exception of one. And so I always get the opportunity to talk to the guest speaker either the morning uh, of or the day before. And this year it was Elizabeth Smart and they offered me the exclusive interview and I was absolutely elated to take it. What immediately stood out to Katina is Elizabeth's courage, her hopefulness, even as a survivor of something so horrific. I was extremely impressed with her candor, uh, with her confidence, with her courage to share the story. Um, But she felt it was important to give women and children and anybody that's been in a traumatic experience a chance to realize that there is restoration after something traumatic happens. And she stressed not being a victim, but being a survivor. And so um, I talk a little bit about my own personal story about being kidnapped. I talk about what helped me through it. And I talk about how important it is to not just once you've physically survived something, but also make sure you're emotionally surviving and you're mentally surviving as well. And you're taking care of yourself because we only have one shot at life. We really should be making the most of it. Elizabeth was 14 years old when her life turned upside down on the night of June 5th, 2002. Can you take me back to that day in June? Well, I mean, it was 19 years ago, just two days ago, two days ago. 
marks the anniversary, my 19-year anniversary of the day that I was kidnapped. Or I should say the night I was kidnapped or the early morning hours that I was kidnapped. Um, prior to that, you know, I lived a very sheltered life, a very safe life. Um, honestly, I, w- I was very innocent. Um, I was very unexperienced and honestly naive to a lot of aspects in the world. And I never dreamt that anything bad could happen to me in my, in my little white picket mind, you know, bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people, you know, right always triumphed, good always triumphed over bad. I mean, it just, it was a very, I don't know, black and white kind of place as far as, you know, good and bad. And, um, I went to bed that night. There had been no forewarning or premonitions. I, I never, ever thought anything bad could happen to me. And then I woke up hearing a strange voice saying, I have a knife at your neck. Don't make a sound. Get up and come with me. And I remember opening my eyes. And sure enough, there was this man standing over me. He had a knife on my neck. He was telling me to get up and go with him. She said that she remembered being in bed. And she thought she was dreaming that someone was trying to take her, kidnap her from her bedroom. And she said she soon woke up and realized that it wasn't a dream because a man was standing there with a knife to her neck that told her to come with me and don't make a sound. And so she said in that moment, she was extremely, extremely fearful. And she did exactly what her captor told her to do. He was pulling me out of my bed. And truly in that moment, I didn't feel like I had an option. I felt like the only thing I could do was go with this man, do as he said. And so I did. Elizabeth says she just did what it took to survive. And that her story in that regard is not unlike the stories of many other survivors of sex trafficking or domestic violence. She mentioned briefly that so many questions surrounded her abduction. Why didn't she yell? Why didn't she scream? Why didn't she make some type of noise? And she said she would ask everyone not to judge because you don't know what will happen or what you will do in that moment when your life is turned upside down. And she thought that was a message that should go out there to people who deal with sex crimes and kidnapping crimes that don't judge because until you're in that situation, you never know what you're going to do. And I think that actually there's so many similarities between not just my story and other uh, stories of other kidnapping victims, but stories of sex trafficking, stories of domestic violence, where you feel like you have to do whatever it takes takes to survive because you don't have a choice. And so from the outside, it's easy to judge. It's easy to be like, well, there was their chance right there. Why wouldn't they take it? You know, why would they, why would they stay with this abusive person? Or, you know, if they're being trafficked, why, why when they are brought to the hotel, why don't they just ask for help or run down the hallway? You know why? But the truth is, is that until you're in that situation, you really don't know what their choices are. You don't really know what their options are. And you don't really understand what they've been through to get to that point in their life. And it's so hard to to make that break. It's so hard to turn back um, to fight against sort of like this this tidal wave of oppression that so many perpetrators exert over their victims. 
That wave of oppression, as Elizabeth puts it, would continue to swell, as her abductor would bring her to an encampment on the outskirts of Salt Lake City, where he and his wife would then hold her captive for months. What were the nine months like for you? Well, I mean, they were, if I had to sum them up, um, it would be being raped continually, um, being abused continually, you know, mentally and emotionally, um, pretty much, yeah, on every level. And um, I just being so manipulated. This is what struck me about her. And I just realized that she was going to be very candid. She was going to be very open and talk about her experience. So she was held captive for nine months. And I asked her, what were those nine months like? And basically she said, a living hell. Because she was raped repeatedly. She was abused uh, repeatedly. And she said she just had to sit there and listen to her captors talk nonstop. And so that's what she sort of explained. And she said she never thought that she would get out of that until either they died or either she died. I mean, in my days, yeah, they were just filled with listening to my captors talking nonstop um, and honestly taking religion, something that should be a good thing in this world, a force for good, a force for positivity in this world, and twisting it and turning it into something ugly so that they could justify doing what they did. Well, the most horrifying part to me in listening to her talk about that is we talked about the sexual abuse. And I said, how did they justify that with religion? And she said, the justification was simple, that he viewed me as his wife. And as his wife, he could have sexual relations with me. And so that's how he justified it. They used religion to justify everything that they did. It was always, you know, you should be grateful that you were chosen, that God chose you for me. You know, I would never do this just on my own. God commanded me to do this. It was the hardest thing for me to ever do. You know, I have children that are older than you, so this is not my choice, but I can't disobey God's will. Anyways, we could spend all day talking about all the things he said, um, but that was just that was just a taste of it. And it went on for nine months. And I mean, I was raised in a religious household. I was raised in a Christian household. And, you know, my parents had always taught me, you know, actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. You know, if something is really important to that person, they will be there. You know, it doesn't matter so much what they say. If they have, you know, go on humanitarian trips every year, if they donate all this money, if at the end of the day they're still hurting people, that that doesn't really, you, you can't buy good deeds. You can't, you can't buy your way out of a bad situation or bad choices. It's the choices that, you know, define the person. And so since I've been taught that from a very early age, I knew what my captors were doing was wrong. That's how I was able to recognize that God did not command them to kidnap me. As her captors used religion to justify their actions, Elizabeth says she played along, all the while waiting for an opportunity to use their misguided religious fervor against them. And just going off of that um, and watching them for so long, I, I remember just thinking, oh, well, if it can work for them so all this time, I mean, maybe one time it can work for me. That opportunity 
would arise sometime after Elizabeth's captors, decided to bring her from Utah to California in the fall of 2002. For a while, from what she told me, um, she was in her own area, but then her captors took her to California. And so she thought that she would just be in California. But I asked her, how did she convince them to go back home, back to Utah? And she said that really basically paraphrasing here that she used reverse psychology on them because her captor was using God and religion as a way to justify what he was doing to her. And so that's when I turned to my captor and I said, I just feel like God is trying to tell me, but I know he'd never speak to me because I'm so, you know, lowly and sinful. But uh, I, I just have this feeling like we're supposed to go back to Salt Lake. Do you think you could ask God if that's where we're supposed to go? Because I know he'll tell you. And this feeling, it just won't leave me alone. And I think in that moment, I mean, if there was a miracle that ever happened, that was certainly part of it. A huge, that was definitely it. Um, but also, I think for him in that moment, it was like you could almost see the wheels turning in his head. And it was like he was just thinking, oh, she willingly accepts me now. Not that he ever held back or didn't do exactly what he wanted before, but I think now he felt like I would be a, a willing participant and that I was accepting this persona he would project. And she said that's how she was able to convince them to bring her back to the, her hometown or her home state. During the nine months Elizabeth Smart was in captivity, her family was doing everything in their power to find her and bring her home. Hours after Elizabeth was taken, her younger sister, Mary Catherine, told her parents what happened. The two sisters slept in the same bedroom and Mary Catherine had seen everything, heard the man's voice as he took Elizabeth. The parents called around and launched a neighborhood search, which according to local newspaper, Deseret News, quickly expanded and by morning involved not just neighbors, but 100 law enforcement officers, state helicopters, and bloodhounds, which were only able to follow Elizabeth's scent for a few feet outside the home. The Smarts then held a press conference the day after Elizabeth was abducted, pleading for someone to come forward, for her abductors to bring her back home. Thousands of volunteers joined the search efforts as days, weeks, months went by, with Elizabeth chained up at a campsite miles from her home. Her abductors even reportedly brought her into town on occasion, but a thin veil over her face was enough to keep her from being discovered. She was hoping that someone would see her, that someone would recognize her, and perhaps, you know, that would help lead to her being free. Uh, they would go to the grocery store or they would go out and about around town to get certain things that they needed for the home. But that's about as far as she went with that. During this time, police questioned a number of potential suspects, but none led them to Elizabeth. Until one day in the fall of 2002, Elizabeth's sister, Mary Catherine, remembered something, the voice of the man who took Elizabeth. It was familiar. She told her family and police she thought it belonged to someone the family knew as Emmanuel, a man who'd done some yard work for the Smart family. They had a sketch done and distributed it to media in February of 2003. Within a few weeks, someone saw the sketch on America's Most Wanted and called in to say, he knew who it was. It was his stepfather, and his real name was Brian David Mitchell. Investigators now had a name and face as they began looking for Mitchell, still 
unsure if he was their suspect, but having exhausted other leads. It's around this same time, as Mitchell's face is all over the news in Salt Lake City, that Elizabeth convinces her captors to return to Utah. Then on March 12, 2003, some people in the city of Sandy, Utah, on the outskirts of Salt Lake City, recognized Brian David Mitchell from the news, walking with two other people, and they contacted police. You're just everyday people, you know, someone out doing the grocery shopping, someone eating a bite, bite of lunch, and someone driving down the, down the road that saw something strange, and they picked up their phones and called the police, and that's what led to my rescue. When officers arrived, they found Mitchell, his wife, a woman named Wanda Barzi, and disguised in a gray wig, Elizabeth Smart. Nine months and seven days after she'd been taken from her bedroom. At first, they interviewed all of them jointly, asking who they were, etc. And she said while they were together, she did not feel comfortable enough to say, yes, I'm Elizabeth Smart. But once they separated her from her captors, she was able to tell the truth. It's a day Elizabeth says she'll never forget the day she began to regain faith in other people. And then seeing how much the community came together and supported me afterwards, I don't think I can ever lose my faith in humanity because of that experience. And that day, I mean, I don't think I'll ever forget that day either. Um, you know, I went from a very, very dark place feeling like this may never end. You know, my only way out of this might be waiting until either they die or, or I die. And um, I remember the police coming up and questioning my captors and then finally questioning me. But it wasn't until they separated me away from my captors that I felt comfortable enough to admit who I was. And then I was brought to the police station where I was reunited with my dad. I was brought to the main headquarters where I was reunited with the rest of my family. I went to the hospital for a rape kit and, and everything else. And then I was finally brought back to my home. A home she hadn't seen in over nine months. I remember walking into my home and feeling like, feeling like a princess. I mean, there was carpet, running water, and my family was all there, and everyone was safe, and everyone was alive, and I just felt like everything that had been taken from me had been given back. This interview with Katina Rankin in June, it's not the first time Elizabeth Smart has shared her story. Far from it. It did not take you long after being with your family for you to be courageous and brave and go speak to Congress. Where did you find that intestinal fortitude? I think initially I very much did not want to. Um, I think I wanted to go back to being who I used to be and... Uh, I think that was probably the hardest thing about coming home was accepting that that just was not going to happen. And I feel like I have to credit my dad because he really was the one that helped me realize how important it is to serve my fellow man and to try to make a difference if I have the opportunity to. And so I always had his example to follow. And when he explained to me what it was in support of, what was trying to happen, I just remember sitting there thinking how bad everything had been while I'd been kidnapped. I mean, 
how it had been the worst experience of my life, how, you know, it was just terrible and how, how would I feel if I knew that someone else was going through that? Because I think one of the things about sex crimes and, and kidnapping crimes is that it, it makes you feel so isolated. It makes you feel so alone that no one else could possibly understand what you're going through. So initially when I got home, I didn't think anyone could understand what I went through. I didn't think anyone could, I don't, I don't know, find common ground ground in between what they've experienced and what I experienced. And as time passed, I quickly realized actually that what I experienced is not so uncommon. It's not so different from what so many thousands of other individuals experience every day. And details might be different, but overall what happens is very similar. And I think when I realized that, that helped me I don't know, find that courage that I wanted to do something, that this was an opportunity to make a difference on something that I felt very strongly about. And that's what pushed me forward. She talked about, you know, it's not your fault. It's the predators that rape and hurt and abuse and that they're the ones that are at fault. So you shouldn't feel guilty for it and that no one can take away your value as an individual or take away your worth. And so I think she just sort of used that intestinal fortitude to get the strength and the courage to talk. Elizabeth Smart is coming to Louisville on October 10th to share her story. Elizabeth with Smart spoke at Lockheed University to a packed room. Well, tonight, live your life without fear was the powerful message that Elizabeth Smart wanted to spread tonight at Iowa State University. The now 30-year-old Smart has become a champion of child safety and advocacy and was here to speak about her latest book titled Where There's Hope. Hello, Barron County. New at noon, the fourth annual Family and Community Engagement Conference, also known as FACE, brought author and activist Elizabeth Smart to Boise. Well, now Smart travels the country to share her story and to inspire people. Over the years, Elizabeth Smart has channeled all the attention she's received into activism and advocacy, pushing for tougher laws on child sex predators, advocating for the passage of the nationwide Amber Alert system, and helping create the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, an organization that, according to its website, is aimed at bringing hope and ending the victimization and exploitation of sexual assault through prevention, recovery, and advocacy. Smart has started her own foundation. She's also written a best-selling book and has also collaborated with the Department of Justice with You're Not Alone, the journey from abduction to empowerment. And what a story. A lot of people gain fame, right? But not a, a lot of people gain fame by what she went through as a teen been abducted and kidnapped. And I asked her how she felt about that. And so she, you know, just basically in a nutshell said, you know, we just have to find the good in it. And again, turn from being a victim to being a survivor and finding the greater good and how we can help people out of our bad situations. More recently, Elizabeth has been working with the foundation on a self-defense training program for women and girls called Smart Defense. I found just some some of the highest level of people that I could. And I explained to them how I wanted this to be something that, you know, 11-year-old girls could do. And, but something also that, you know, mature women could do. Because um, I was tired of sexual assault happening. And, and through this, I mean, I 100% acknowledge we will never, there is nothing 
that you can do that will prevent rape from happening until rapists stop raping. Um, and you can go through this training and you can go through it and go through it and go through it and still be raped. But what this also does is it teaches you how strong you really are and it gives you choices and it gives you options and that's what you need, that's what you deserve, that's your best chance for survival is having choices and having options. And if it can just help you stand up just a little bit straighter, give you just a little bit more confidence, you become that much less a target and that much less vulnerable, which predators feed on vulnerability. That's what they look for. And so, yes, there is no, you know, 100% guarantee, but I feel like anything that we can do to give us options, to give us choices, to help us feel empowered and confident in ourselves is worth doing. And that's what smart defense is all about. And it's, um, I mean, it has cough. Krav Maga and it has jujitsu in it, has some Muay Thai in it, it has a mixture of all these different martial arts in it, but it also talks about what is rape, what is situational awareness, uh, what are stand your ground laws, um, you know, where, where do you go? If, if you are raped, who do you turn to? What, what are your choices then? Um, so it's a lot of, uh, an educational, um, element as well, not just a very, not just physical, but also um, comprehensive. When asked what's next, Elizabeth says she's focused on the best part of her life, her kids. She's been married since 2012 and now has three young children. Meanwhile, she continues to speak out, sharing her story of survival and making sure other survivors know they're not alone. And her message to children and women, and she did mention others, so that's the reason why I keep saying that, because this also happens to men. She said to everyone who is out there who is hurting and that is suffering and who is looking for help, she wanted them to believe that there are good people in this world. And it goes back to the day that people saw her in town, 18 miles from her home, that she saw the good in humanity because people picked up the phone and they called law enforcement and said, I believe this is Elizabeth Smart. So she wanted people to know that no matter what, no one can diminish your work. And that whatever they do, whatever happens to you, that no one can take away your worth as a human being. Nobody else can diminish your worth. No, whatever they do they cannot diminish your worth as a human being. And as I've gone on in my life, I wish that survivors of sexual abuse, whether you're a man or a woman or them, that everyone realized that nobody deserves to be raped, that nobody deserves to be sexually assaulted, or nobody just wakes up and deserves that. That's not, that's not right, that's not fair. And that these predators that rape and that hurt and that abuse, they're the ones who are at fault and they can never take away your value as an individual. They can never take away your worth. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, here along with Reed Redman and Spencer Burdick will be back with us next week. Reed, this case is obviously well-known. Um, people know the name Elizabeth Smart. To hear her voice on this episode and a lot of that interview is just really 
amazing that she's able to go out and talk about these things and has done so much since that terrible time in the early 2000s. Uh, I had a few questions for you. Uh, first of all, about her captors. Uh, and we hear you know, the story of what happened to her. What were their sentences? What's happened to them? Yeah, so of course, both of her captors were taken into custody the day Elizabeth was discovered in Utah. Uh, Brian David Mitchell wasn't actually deemed competent to stand trial until 2010, so quite a while later. Um, and he was found guilty of two charges. They were kidnapping and unlawful transportation of a minor across state lines. He's now serving a sentence of life without parole. During his sentencing, Elizabeth gave a brief statement basically just saying that he doesn't have power over her anymore. The quote uh, is actually that he doesn't affect her anymore. Uh, Wanda Barzi, the other uh, one of her captors, she entered a guilty plea for her role in the kidnapping and was sentenced to 15 years back in 2010. She was actually released from prison just eight years later in 2018. And I just want to read part of a statement that Elizabeth put out uh, when Barzi was released. Quote, it's incomprehensible how someone who has not cooperated with her mental health evaluations or risk assessments and someone who did not show up to her own parole hearing can be released into our community. Uh, later in the statement, she says, quote, I appreciate the support, love, and concern that has already been expressed and will work diligently to address the issue of Barzi's release, as well as to ensure changes are made moving forward to ensure this doesn't happen to anyone else in the future. All right. And another part of the story I wanted to ask you about, Reed, and sort of the uh, the legacy, of course, not just the Elizabeth Smart Foundation and all that she's doing now, but the Amber Alert system, which is an everyday term uh, we hear about quite a bit these days. But talk about that a little bit and how it's evolved. Yeah. So I mentioned Elizabeth and her family have used a lot of the attention that that they were getting to push for the expansion of the Amber Alert system, uh, which when she was kidnapped was kind of implemented on a state-by-state -state basis. Some states had a system, some states didn't. There, there was an Amber Alert system in Utah at the time. It was actually called the Rachel Alert, and it was used for the first time when Elizabeth was kidnapped. And there's a local paper in Salt Lake City called Deseret News that sort of did a report looking back at how her case helped expand the system. They reported that her case helped make Utah kind of a leader in Amber Alert coordination, and, and other states have kind of been calling up Utah for help coordinating their own programs. Even a couple other countries, I think, called up coordinators in Utah. And just looking at the Department of Justice website, I've confirmed that there are now Amber Alert systems in all 50 states, in D.C., in Puerto Rico, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and in some uh, native reservations. So it's it's really clear that Elizabeth Smart's kidnapping was a, a watershed moment in terms of expanding this incredibly important program. You know, her story is just one of those cases where you're so struck by the fact that complete strangers saw her captors out in public and it led to an arrest. Yeah, it's really a reminder to to take those alerts we get, you know, on our phones when there's an Amber Alert, to take those seriously, you know, read it and, and keep an eye out. You never know. All right, thanks, Reed, for bringing us the story this week and also Katina Rankin at WATN in Memphis for the story this week. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.